Good morning, everyone. Did you see that truck? Was that truck not awesome? I am here to talk to you about the truck, but I'm here to talk to you about other things, too, in AWS storage. And I love the truck for a couple of reasons. One is people are using it today to bring in hundreds of petabytes into AWS. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But it's also a sign for me of how storage is changing. And it's a sign also of how AWS listens to what customers ask for, and then we build it. There's a saying that Edison, uh, there's a saying from Edison, the value of an idea lies in the using of it. And I like the saying for a couple of reasons. I like it because, first of all, it's, embodies a lot of the thinking that we have in AWS, which is ideas are only interesting once they're practical and they're put into production and then they're put into use by you. We get our ideas from you all the time. A lot of what I'm going to talk about today is driven by what your ideas were and what you asked for. The other reason I like this saying is because it's a lot like data. Data without usefulness is just data taking up space in a server. And what we try to do with AWS storage is not just store your data, but try to figure out how you can make it as useful as you can for whatever your business needs are. And the reality is, it all adds up to a lot of data. So by one estimate, there's going to be 44 zettabytes by 2020. 44. And now that zettabyte count is coming from a whole bunch of different types of storage. It's coming from big data. It's coming from images. It's coming from IoT. And the question is for you, what do you want to do with that? Now, I've worked in AWS for six years now, and I have seen an explosion of big data use cases. And it's just been fascinating. Big data has helped you take all the data that you have at your fingertips and get some insight out of them. And a lot of the focus that you heard in the keynote this morning was more and more ability for you to use tools like Athena to unlock that data and get your value out of it. Big data is just going to get bigger. A lot of what we are seeing, too, for the cloud is a lot of customers are starting from backup and restore type of uh, scenarios and archive, simple archive. Everybody has archive. You all have data that is sitting around in data centers, in servers, and those are all opportunities for you to put into the cloud and, and take advantage of it, get some use out of it. AWS storage is both broad and it's deep. And so when you think about your options and you're looking at the, the platform for AWS, but you're also looking at other platforms, I think one of the things that's meaningful to me is the run rate of AWS. S3 was the first AWS service, and it was launched 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Now, we say that because we launched about three months before EC2, but I will always say that. The first service. We have 10 years of experience storing data in the cloud. We have customers who have exabytes of storage on us. 
And that depth and that years of experience with not just S3, but Elastic Block Store, with Glacier, that matters. We have a saying in Amazon. And the saying is, there is no compression algorithm for experience. And that is true. If you think about your journey in your work and in your life, you know that is true. There is no way that you can get, condense the experience that you've gained without actually having gone through it. And we have gone through it. So we have both the platform and we've been really building out our solutions. What you saw today in the keynote with the truck was one part of our infrastructure migration story. And again, if I were to go back 10 years ago, we weren't thinking trucks. We were thinking storage. But we got to trucks because that is what customers asked for. The other thing that we have really internalized and really built upon in the last 18 months is this idea of how we can provide more integration with your existing infrastructure. You have spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of experience building up your existing infrastructure. And we don't, want a lot, we don't want you to lose that value either. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is what we've been building to help you leverage that existing infrastructure while taking the advantage that you want to for the scale and elasticity of the cloud. So let's start first from the platform. I like to say this is the year of file. So we have object storage for S3. We have it for Glacier. We have persistent block storage. And this is the year that we introduced file, native managed file support with the Amazon Elastic File Server or uh, system. So this capability completes what was already a broad platform for options for you. But we've also done other things in each of the platform areas. We will continue to do this, by the way, because we don't think we're done. We're nowhere close to being done. In our minds, we have just started. So in addition to launching support for file capabilities, Amazon S3 continues to evolve. I'm going to go over some things that we are announcing today a little bit later in this presentation. But earlier in the year, we introduced a capability called Transfer Acceleration. And Transfer Acceleration allows customers who are in remote sites to upload data into S3 and eliminate the, geographic, eliminate the geographic distance and the latency that introduces. And the reason why that happens is because you're uploading that data on our backbone. So we have a customer huddle that does analytics for sports performance. And what that basically means is that professional, amateur, and just neighborhood coaches all over the country are uploading video into Huddle to do analysis of performance using the tools that Huddle provides. So you have video coming from everywhere. And they're using transfer acceleration to eliminate the latency and to make those uploads go up to six times faster. That's the type of innovation that we keep building into the platform. We also have other things that we introduce. For example, S3 is now supporting uh, IPv6. And the reason why we we're supporting IPv6 is because the explosion of IoT devices out there. And if you don't have an address exhaustion problem right now, you will soon. So we have that capability in the platform. 
And Glacier continues to evolve as well with simplifications and new options for retrieval of data. Talk about that a little bit later. So if you think about each of these areas, we will always have the best, broadest, and deepest platform for storage. What we're working on and evolving very rapidly is how to bring that data in. And that's the feedback that we got from customers. We, they, they told us, look, you do have a great platform. It is the market leader in storage, and we don't want to trust our storage with anyone else because they, they are the crown jewels. But it sure is hard for me to think about how to get that data in. So if you think about what we've invested in, we've invested in another generation of snowballs. I have a couple of them up here. These are snowball edges. You can tell because they're orange. And I'll talk about them in some more detail later. But that is all about data transport. It's about data transport and data collection. Storage Gateway announced this week support for a file gateway. And I talked about this being the year of file. Storage Gateway is a virtual appliance that you can install on-premises and you can upload your data into S3 from your file gateway using an NTFS interface, 3.0 and 4.1, and it will convert it into a native S3 object in a bucket that you own and that any application can access. This is a big deal. This means that all the filers you have in place, all the file systems that you know, all the, the applications right now that expect that file system interface but want the scalability of S3 and the ability to maybe spin up other applications in EC2 to use S3 or even on-premises applications to use S3, you can do that now with the familiar protocols that you have come to expect for file system. It's a big deal. The other investment that we continue to make is to, to allow customers to connect over secure lines using Direct Connect from their on-premises environment to EFS. Another announcement for this week. Prior to this, the only way you could use EFS was from an EC2 instance. Now, you just go and use it from your on-premises environment and you use Direct Connect to connect into EFS. So EFS as a building block, and that's how we think about it. It is a building block just like we have block storage and just like we have object storage. There are a lot of customers who are using it uh, today. So Atlassian is the maker of Jira. Raise your hand if you know Jira. Raise your hand if you might know Jira a little bit too well. Okay. So Atlassian looked at EFS as an option for them to run JIRA on the cloud. And they had evaluated other options. They had evaluated Gluster. They had looked at a bunch of different choices for them. And when they tried EFS, it really met their needs. And it met their needs because of the performance and the speed that they really wanted. So Atlassian is going to be releasing JIRA support, and they're going to be using EFS on the back end because that was the scalable, durable, highly available storage platform that they needed. Spokio does uh, video ad analytics. And again, they looked at different options, but they liked the performance in particular, as well as the scalability and the manageability of EFS. And Monsanto is a drug company. They produce drugs. They do a lot of um, analytics. And they have machines. They have um, lab analytics machines. 
And they generate a ton of data off of them. They have over 750. And that data coming off is being pulled into EFS for the type of analytics that they need to do on them. All of these different use cases are pretty different. They're from different industries, but they all are looking for the performance, the durability, the reliability of a file option in the AWS storage portfolio. Now, EFS has the durability and the availability because it is also a multiple AZ architecture and it can withstand uh, or be resilient to the loss of one AZ. So you have your flexibility, your availability, but you also have choice now if you're looking for a file system option that's fully managed by AWS. We talked about what's new for the different ways to transfer data into Amazon S3. And I have to say, the uh, Snowball Edge and the Snowmobile has captured a lot of people's imaginations. Uh, that is very true, that story that Andy told. Last year, around this time, when we released AWS Snowball, we sold out real fast. And since then, we replenished our supply chain with the true demand. And those snowballs have gone around the globe, I think, 40 times by this point. They have tracked so many miles. And so I will talk a little bit more about the Snowball Edge and the Snowmobile. But if you look at these different options, these are all here because we know that your businesses are different. Your needs are different. Your infrastructure is different. And so if Direct Connect isn't going to work for you and you need another way to get your data in, we have different options. We have Firehose, which lets you stream small objects in and we do the aggregation for you. We have Transfer Acceleration, which really specializes in very big files, genomics files, uh, genomics um, like uh, sequences, genome sequences, which are very large files, video. And then Storage Gateway, I think, is ubiquitous. Storage Gateway is if you have any file system interface and you want to use it just to bring data into S3 and back down again, it's a great option for you. So we have an announcement today, and it's one that a lot of S3 users have been waiting for. And our announcement today is that available now, you can add up to 10 tags to any object in S3. 10 tags that are editable. This capability transforms integration opportunities with your on-premises environment. So if you think about that, if you have storage today, if you have S3 objects today, there's metadata on it today, but it's not editable. If you are able to create 10 editable tags, then you can add unique content IDs. You can add a key value. These are key value pairs, by the way. You can add any key value pair that indicates where that object is in a business workflow, whether it's data processing or it's compliance stages. There's, there's any number of options that you can do for your tags, and you can change them and update them anytime you want, any number of times. This is a big deal, too. So when we thought about designing this and we thought about, okay, how, how are customers really going to use these tags, and we started talking to different folks about this, we realized that when we 
give customers the ability to essentially put their business logic as an editable attribute on an object, they are going to want to use that for everything. And so what we've done is that we've also incorporated that concept of a tag into other areas. Lifecycle policies. Lifecycle policies are the way that people determine the number of days after which they move data from standard storage class into Glacier or standard infrequent access. You can do that by tag now. So imagine if you put a tag on an object and it was a compliance tag. Then you could tier that object into Glacier, which, is worm, which has worm compliance, and you could do it all automatically based on tags and lifecycle policy. Another feature that we've introduced today is one-minute metrics for request level for requests in S3. So this is request level. Last year we introduced bucket level metrics that were primarily focused on capacity. How many objects do I have? How much storage do I have? Now we're providing that operational visibility by letting you look at the count of requests and the count of errors and first byte latency all on a one minute uh, increment of time. We're letting you also put filters in place. And those filters on metrics give you the ability to look at a group of metrics organized by tag, organized by prefix name, or just everything that you have in a bucket. So again, bringing that idea of your business logic in tags and letting you start doing things like drilling down for more visibility into operational metrics. Raise your hand if you have an S3 bucket and you want to know what's in it. Okay. Today, we are launching S3 inventory reports. S3 inventory reports, when you turn it on, and you can turn it on in the console, it's very easy to do, will deposit a report of everything in your bucket. And I'll do it once a day for you. If you want real-time analysis of what's in your bucket, you can still use list. That's the API that we have if you want to list what's in your bucket. But if you don't want to do that, if you, don't want to, if you want to retire an application that's doing that inventory reporting, or you just want to stop whatever process you're doing right now to go look for that, you can turn on inventory reports, and you can see what's in your bucket. The other capability that we're introducing is, this, uh, is that we want you to have all the analysis that you can about the usage of your data. This is, really, this is really a reflection of how we run our business, the business of S3 and the services in AWS. We run it off data. When I sit down and I make decisions and I make roadmap decisions, I make any decision, I make it with data. And I know you do too. So what we're doing today is we're giving some visibility through reports and just raw data for usage patterns on your S3 storage. And you can do anything you want with that. You can look at it in the graphs in our console. You can export it to whatever tools you have. You can feed it into your learning tools. That data is now yours, and we will continue to expand on it. 
So here's one view that we have of the CloudWatch metrics as one-minute metrics. Now, as you can see, you have the ability to set any number of filters. And the filters basically let you look at things like your request latency, first byte latency, bytes uploaded, but organized by tags. Number, you, know, you can use a key value pair of your application name. And because these are CloudWatch metrics, you can look at your EC2 health metrics in the same graph. This gives you that deep operational view that you can line up with your other AWS resources or your own custom metrics because, again, we're just using CloudWatch. And if you are too, you can get some pretty deep insight into what's going on. And you can, continue, you can set CloudWatch alarms. In the S3 console, you can turn on our storage insights. And when you do that, we will go and observe. We call it observations. We'll go observe what's in your bucket. And it'll take us a day, sometimes two. And we'll come back. And the next time you're in the console, you will see graphs like this. And graphs like this will tell you how are you retrieving your storage, what are your data retrieval patterns against the total body of storage that you have? Now, you can look at this data by bucket, you can look at this data by prefix, and you can look at this data by tags. So, in a world of data lakes, if you are managing a data lake, you might not have a ton of visibility around how all those applications are using your data lake. But this gives it to you. If you set tags on objects that are, for example, the different applications that are running around in your organization, you can start looking at the operational metrics by those tags, and you can start looking at the behavior patterns of those tags. You can say, hey, owner of this application, you are using a ton of bandwidth because you're data retrieving like crazy. Do you need to do that, or is that a runaway process? Those are the type of conversations you can have with data. And that's what we're launching today. The other thing that we're giving the ability to do is export that data. So you don't just have to see it in the console. You can export all that information about data retrieval. And you can pull it up into Excel. OK, so raise your hand if you're an Excel person. OK, keep your hand up if you are a pivot person, pivot table. Okay, you don't have to be shy. Somebody you're proud of. Okay, so you there's always somebody in every group that is amazing with pivot tables. So if you give this raw data to a business analyst, if you yourself have mad skills with pivot tables, you can come up with some amazing insights that you haven't had before around your patterns of data usage and storage. So in this uh, example. What we're looking at is storage by date. It's actually storage by numbers of uh, days in S3 for this particular bucket. And you can see how much of your data is old, new, in between. And you can, again, organize that in your Excel spreadsheet or on the console any way you want. You can organize that by prefix, tag, and bucket. So I was on QuickSight when GA last week. And that is an awesome ad hoc analysis tool. And it has an S3 connector. So you can use that S3 connector to bring this exported data in and do additional analysis. 
In this case, you can look at, for example, how is your access ratio trending over time? So you can go back to your application owners and you can say, wow, who are my heavy hitters? I can go show you a graph that says, I don't know what you're doing, but your access is trending super high over time. Or if you look at this graph and the access is trending down, you can say, well, this storage is a good candidate for infrequent access, which is much cheaper than standard, or Glacier, which last week dropped down to four-tenths of a cent. So you can look for these opportunities to really change the business because you have data. Another announcement from this morning was Amazon Athena. And you can do structured SQL queries on S3 with this uh, capability. So you can do that. You can, uh, this is another example of where we're trying to unpack that insight in the data that you already store in S3. Raise your hand if you use Glacier. All right, it's about a third of the room. Raise your hand if you knew that we dropped the price of Glacier to four-tenths of a cent. Okay. You know, that was the day before Thanksgiving, so you guys get extra points for knowing that. Uh, we also introduced a big change around predictable faster, faster retrievals. So we flattened the cost. There's just a cost per gigabyte retrieved, and it doesn't go up and down. And we provided two new options for data retrieval. So the existing data retrieval model, which is four hours, is still available. It's called standard. But if you need your data faster, you have two options. Oh, you have one option for faster and one option for slower and cheaper. Your faster option, you can retrieve Glacier data in one to five minutes now using expedited retrieval. That is a game changer for many companies because what that means is you can take advantage of that amazing price for data at rest for Glacier, but you can get your data back in anywhere from one to five minutes if you need it. So anything that is in storage, semi-cold storage because of legal hold or HR hold or anything like that, where you need it but you need it kind of fast when you need it, you can now use Glacier for those type of opportunities. Bulk retrievals is different. Bulk retrievals is for customers who need to do a lot of retrievals and they want a discount for volume. And so with bulk retrievals, the, the uh, time for retrieval is more like 8 to 12 hours, so longer than 4 hours and certainly longer than 1 to, to 5 minutes, but you're going to save a ton of money with it. And that's what Sony does. Every time an iPhone comes out, Sony has to go back, pull a bunch of media libraries out of archive, and re-transcode them. And so Sony has you know, roughly 20 petabytes of this, and what they do is when they're retrieving it, they have to retrieve that full 20 petabytes. That's a lot of petabytes to go and pay for. And so they use the bulk option because it's just cheaper for them that, you know, if they get it within a day, it's fine for their use case. And they save a lot of money that way, too. Proofpoint is the opposite. Proofpoint is a cybersecurity company, and they want the faster data retrieval. And they don't mind paying for it because they save so much on the volume of the storage that they have in Glacier that it just makes sense. Elastic Block Storage did a couple of big announcements earlier in the year. They lowered price on snapshots, very popular feature. A lot of people use EBS snapshots to stand up EBS in another region. Uh, but they also improved their performance and they launched two new EBS volume types. 
The first one is a high throughput volume type. And the high throughput volume type is, uh, supports up to 500 gigabytes per second. And it's very targeted at Cassandra type of workloads, very low latency fast workloads. They also introduced something on the other end of the spectrum, which is a cold volume type. And the cold volume type is 2.5 cents per gigabyte per month. And so it's, it's quite cheap. And it's up to 250 gigabytes per second for performance. So something is very interesting is happening with EBS. EBS has launched these two capabilities. They launched other volume types last year. EBS now has a pretty good tiering story. And that is what customers are finding. Customers are saying, wow, I can still use an EBS volume, but I can, special, uh, I can specialize the volume I picked based on what I'm doing. And that is what Librato does, for example. Librato is a real-time uh, uh, analytics metrics, operational metrics um, provider. And they saved, I think, 35% because they just switched to a volume type that best suited their needs. They were overpaying for the volume type before. Same thing with Zendesk, which is a customer service application and videology as well. So when you think about EBS, we continue to invest in it. One of the things that we launched was uh, encrypted boot volumes, encrypted snapshots. It's still going to be the best block storage you have. But more of these volume types are coming in. So you can make choices based on them, based on the type of storage that you have. And I'll tell you, these new EC2 instances that are diskless, they really allow you to special, uh, specialize what do you want for CPU and memory, and then what do you want for block storage. And now you have all these options available for EBS. We've talked to a lot of you about what you have on-premises. And what we're finding is that for storage, you want three things. You want migration. And the migration is interesting, because sometimes you want the migration to go up to the cloud and stay there. Sometimes you want the migration to go up to the cloud, stay there for a day so you can process the data, and then come back down. And sometimes you want the data to go back and forth all the time. So migration is a very interesting story. Bursting is a little different. Bursting is you have capacity in place. You don't want to buy any more. What you want to do is you either want to do short-term bursts where peaks go up, into the cloud, your peak store, your peaks where you need more storage, you can leverage the cloud. Or you just want to stop buying more hardware and you want to expand in the cloud. And then tiering is all about cost management. So tiering, the entire idea with tiering is you have, you have a lot of storage here, you want to save money, and so you tier it. So we're going to talk now about how you can use the different parts of the AWS storage platform for each of those. The announcement of EFS over Direct Connect satisfies a couple of things. One is the secure connection to the cloud from on-premises. That is what a lot of chief security officers are asking for, and the service we provide is Direct Connect. The Direct Connect into EFS lets you uh, take advantage of bursting type of workloads right away. You can turn this on today. This capability is available today, and if you want to start with experimenting with EFS, bursting is a very common use case. You can also use it for 
data migration, if you have vast volumes of data to migrate into EFS, we're finding a lot of the bursting workloads in place. AWS Storage Gateway, earlier this year, worked pretty hard on expanding the platform for Storage Gateway. Now available in all public regions before it was available in some of them. A new user interface, an easier to use console interface. VTL capacity went up to a petabyte. And we did quali quali uh, qualifications for different third-party storage providers. The big news for today is the introduction of file gateway for S3. This is the NFS interface for S3. So if you are on-premises and you use NFS, this is a very easy way to get up and running to create a temporary or long-term gateway of, uh, that moves storage into S3. So there's a couple of things here. One is NFS integration supporting both 3.0 and 4.1. Second thing is it's your bucket. The way that we built this is that we said we will do the conversion into an S3 object for you. And that S3 object is there for you to use in any way you want to. And because it's S3, you can scale. We have the elasticity. You can put as much as you want. And then you can bring it back down again to the file gateway if you need it. So Moderna is another healthcare uh, company that um, uses it right now. It's spinning off. Uh, data off of a bunch of devices, and it's sending it up into S3. Veristore is a managed service provider, and what they do is they do backup solutions, and they are using this right now to get data from their data center into S3. I would encourage you to just try it in the console. This is the fastest way that you will have to set up a gateway into S3 and get this connectivity going between the elasticity of the cloud and your on-premises environment with almost no interruption or no extra customized work that you have to do. You don't have to call a developer to do this. It's very easy to do. We also got feedback from you that it's important to work with the infrastructure that you already have in place in your data center. And we did that this year. We got together with some big providers like Dell, EMC, Backup and Recovery, like NetApp. And we started to work with them for how you can do things like tier from a NetApp device into S3. We made a lot of progress here. And so I have some uh, examples of that, both in terms of primary storage, where your device is your primary storage and you want to tier up into S3. Cloudian is a good example of that, for, uh, uh, as well as NetApp. Backup and recovery, these are devices that are out there today, tiering again into S3. Archive and other capabilities that we have. So you're going to continue to see the storage portfolio expand. The feedback that we got from you is that you've already made an investment. And so what we are doing here is that we're asking you to not replace your investment. What we're doing is just going and working with the people that you want us to work with, because this list came from you, and we're making sure that you can tap into S3 from there. All right, let's talk about the snowball edge. We have these snowball edges here, and I am fully aware that this is a great selfie opportunity after the talk. That's why we have two. 
we have the Snowball Edge because after we launched Snowball, they were immediately popular and customers asked for more things. So Andy talked about a couple of different scenarios. I'll give you some more examples of people who are using this. But I think the key thing to take away from this device is that it's going to be, uh, you can put a snowball edge and keep it on site longer. So in the snowball case, what we released last year, the entire idea with snowball was data transport. You get a snowball, you load it up, you send it to AWS. This device is built to stick around for a while in your data center. You can put it in a cluster, and because you have the S3 endpoint in it, it also has an NFS endpoint in it, you can take some time to get your data on the Snowball Edge. But not only can you take some time to get the snowball on uh, your data on the Snowball Edge, you can keep it there for a while. We are okay with that. It's the same pricing structure as Snowball. It's a little bit more expensive. You pay for the device, and after 10 days, you pay for a daily fee. But if you are okay with that, if you're okay paying a daily fee for months, we're okay with you keeping it. And all of a sudden, you've got this little storage-oriented cluster with just enough compute that you can park for a while. Now, I am very excited about this. I am a former Peace Corps volunteer. I served in northern Mali. And I think this opens up a ton of opportunities, not just for IoT devices, but for a lot of different countries and companies that work with countries in highly rural environments where you need to collect data for survey data or whatever, and you can keep these rugged containers out in the field collecting data until you need to bring them back into an AWS data center. It really opens up a lot of different opportunities. So it has more capacity. It's 100 terabytes. We still have the Snowball available. That's a 50 terabyte and an 80 terabyte capacity. If you need to just use Snowball for data collection and, tra uh, sorry, data transport, that's fine. But this is a new capability. The on-premises compute, you have enough compute in here that's the moral equivalent of an M4 uh, 4XL. That's a lot. That's actually quite a lot of compute power. So you can use Lambda, you can process the data coming in, you can deduplicate it, you can look for anomalies, and you can program it against it using our endpoints. Philips uses this today. So if you guys want to talk about a constrained data center, hospitals. In the basement or bottom floor of almost every hospital are a lot of servers. Hospitals use servers quite a bit because they're generating a vast amount of data. And what Philips is doing with the Snowball Edge is they're using the Snowball Edge in a resident capacity. Now, I don't mean resident in the medical sense. I mean resident in the Snowball sense, which means they get clusters, and you can have up to five in a cluster, and they keep them in the hospital IT center, which is the basement. And they collect MRI information, and they, do, they use the compute to do transcoding for when people are bringing up the images to match the, the resolution of the device that's displaying the image. And so what that lets Philips do is it lets them deal with surges in demand in particular or just not being able to expand the data center in the hospital, and it lets them just bring in more or less snowballs depending on what they need. 
And then occasionally they'll send a snowball in to put you know, the MRI data up for archival purposes, but they don't need to do that, and they don't do it very often. It's more of a resident type of scenario. But there are other uses. Andy talked about uh, Oregon State University, where these guys go out and they connect, collect uh, oceanographic data. Uh, you can imagine, you can put it on a plane, you can put it on any type of device. The windmill example is a good one too. So in these remote areas where there's not connectivity, if you have a device like this sitting there, just getting a feed of the data that's coming in with the Lambda capability and the compute capability to do anomaly, anomaly detection, there's a lot of opportunities that open up here. All right, the truck. Uh, the truck is in use. We have a customer right now who is using this truck. And this is um, specifically for customers who have very, very large data sets. And you know, again, I love this example because this is straight from the mouths of customers telling us, I love what you got. You have a great platform. I can't wait for months and months, years, to transfer data that I have in my volumes up into the cloud. And so we built the snowmobile. So the snowmobile lets you move 100 petabytes. It is designed for bandwidth rates of up to a terabit. And when the snowmobile is in transit between point A and point B, we have a full military escort that goes with it. We track it with surveillance cameras 24-7 that alarm when we either lose connectivity. We do a lot of government work, can you tell? But we have a very secure model here for the transport of the truck between two different locations, as well as the data that's on the truck. So when the data comes into the truck, it is encrypted. And the keys are not there on the truck. The keys are stored in the AWS key management service so that when you're taking the data off the truck, that's where you're getting your key from. So we have thought through this very carefully. And we've thought through this carefully because the truck is not here because it's a theoretical need. The truck is here because we have customers like Digital Globe that ask for the truck. So Digital Globe is a geospatial company. And what they do is they collect a lot of data off satellites that help us understand climate change. They collect over 85 terabytes of data a day. They have a lot of data. And so they need to move petabytes and petabytes into S3. And so they are using the truck right now. They're actually loading up the truck right now. I think they have 20 petabytes on the truck, and it continues to load. So I talked a lot about different things here. I talked about the year of the file system interface, either EFS, storage gateway, NFS endpoint, and that snowball edge. I could probably spend an entire conversation, an hour, just talking about the platform and solutions. But we have more than that. We continue to build out that storage ecosystem to work with partners that you are using their, their hardware today for storage and make sure that cloud is a capability that you can tap into. And we're building more services and we're doing a massive amount of innovation like the device that you have on stage in the truck that let you plug in AWS storage with your existing infrastructure. And we're not done yet. 
we have a lot more to build. So with that, I would like to say thank you very much for coming. And I will take, we have some minutes, we have 15 minutes to take questions.